There will be many things uh, in this life that the Lord blesses you with. Many of them will bring a smile to your face. Many of them will give you some peace and some contentment. But none of them will ever be enough. There is one thing, one object of worship that is worthy that is enough for us. Every, every uh, job you ever have, no matter how much it provides for you, you will always need more. No matter um, how good your relationship with your spouse is, it's always going to be lacking in some ways. There is one relationship that is enough for us. And that is the relationship that we can have through our God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we've come to, to rejoice in this wonderful gift that He's given to us, this gift of knowing Him, of being near to Him, of rejoicing in Him. And as we open His Word together and see what He has to tell us from the Scripture, uh, we know that it is instruction to a church that He loves, to a family that He calls His own. And so we're grateful to receive it and apply it to our lives in ways that honor Him. Before we get into the Word, if you'd like to open up to... Ephesians, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 to start with today. I wanted to share some good news with you. Uh, Many of you know Gavin and Yannick Blake. I know they're first service people, so some of you might not be too familiar with them. But we wanted to share with you that they are expecting a baby. They have been hoping to grow their family for some time now, and praise God, they are 13 weeks along in that journey. So uh, as a church, I want us to be praying for them that that pregnancy goes well. And that God's going to prepare us to celebrate the arrival of their beautiful baby boy or girl. We don't know at this point. Uh, Also, if if you hadn't heard, the news has been out for a while, but Katie and Adam Griffith, who uh, used to go here, they live in Arizona now. Um, They, uh, Adam Adam couldn't make it, but Katie and the kids were here first service. They're also expecting their fourth child. So a lot to be thankful for, a lot to praise God for. So let's take a moment and thank God for new life. And let's also thank Him for the life that we have in His Son, Jesus Christ, and ask that the Word would speak in mighty ways to us today as we humble ourselves before it and as we let it have its impact on us. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious God, our our giver of life, we know, Father, that that no one could survive apart from you. You are the giver and sustainer of all things good. And so I pray that as we think about this family that we love so much, God, the the Blake family, I, I pray that this new addition is going to be a tremendous joy to them. I pray that you would prepare them uh, for this wonderful gift that you have given, that they might be good stewards of this child and raise that little boy or little girl up in a way that they might one day love you and honor you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would draw that child to yourself. Uh, Father, as we pray for all of our kids, that they would trust you one day. I ask that you would help uh, Yannick to have a good pregnancy, Lord God, and that, um, that in all things you would look out for her and, and keep her healthy. Pray the same for Katie, Lord, as, as uh, they get ready to um, welcome a fourth little child into the world. Please bless them. We're grateful for a visit with them today. Lord, help them uh, to be involved in a good church there in Arizona so that they can serve you and, and apply themselves to your mission as well. God, as we open your word, I pray that we, um, we would appreciate it, that we would see it for what it is. It is the inspired, infallible words of a God who never fails. You would never tell us a lie, God. So as we take this word into heart, I pray that we would trust that it directs us in the right directions. I pray that we would be happy Uh, to be corrected by it if we need that, Lord, that we would rejoice in the ways that we are already living according to this word, Lord. But through all things, God, may you be glorified as we take what you tell us, God, and return it to you in worshipful obedience. We love you and are grateful for all that you intend to accomplish through the preaching of your word today in this pulpit and in pulpits around the world. May you be lifted up in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be wrapping up our series about the requirements of biblical leadership 
namely the offices of elder and deacon that we've been examining over the last uh, three months. I pray that the series that we're, uh, we're completing this morning has given us a stronger understanding of the part that these two offices, elder and deacon, are supposed to play in the life and the health of God's church. I trust that it has helped us to understand just what kind of men God wants to call to these positions. And I'm especially hoping that it has prepared us to complete the process of calling and training some godly men to serve as deacons here at First Family Church. If you have uh, not yet submitted your nominations, by the way, you have about three weeks left. We have put out nomination forms on the back table and on the name tag table so that if there is somebody that is on your heart that might serve as a good uh, deacon that you would put their name in, in the hat and we would be able to contact them and see if that's something that they would be willing to do. Uh, so you've got three more weeks to submit those suggestions um, before the elders begin to pursue people and, and give them phone calls and uh, see if they're willing to serve. So for this last sermon in the series, I, I want us to take some time to establish a right view of how these leaders and the people that they are called to lead and serve, how they're supposed to interact together and how they're supposed to view one another. To lay the foundation for that understanding, I'd like us to turn our attention to a very pivotal passage in the life of the church. It's found in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read several verses out of this chapter this morning. We're going to begin by looking at verses 1 through 3. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Ephesus, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Selfishness and dissension can divide churches. If we do not love one another in godly ways, if we do not remember that it is Jesus that we are here to worship and praise, then we can make the mistake of letting small things drive a wedge in between us and weaken the testimony of the church that God has called us to be a part of. I've seen this in churches um, that I've attended before. I know that you've probably got loved ones that have been in churches where division really hindered the ministry and testimony of those churches. And so Paul is urging us here in this fourth chapter of Ephesians that we should be eager to maintain the bond of unity that has been won for us by Jesus Christ. He has called us together to, to experience His love, and as one body we should experience that love in a unified way. The apostle goes on to describe that great unity we can experience when we remember the only reason any of us is here in God's family in the first place, is because of the work of Jesus Christ. It's not because of the work that we did. It's not because of our moral accomplishments. It's because of the sacrifice of Jesus. That we are together in one Lord who brings us together as one body in one baptism who fills us with one Holy Spirit who guides us into one faith. God's desire is for His church to be unified. So with this idea in mind, only a few verses later, Paul expands on the role that leaders play in, in preserving that unity. And so look at verses 11 and 12. The Apostle Paul writes, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In this passage we see two main ideas being communicated. First of all, 
God has supplied various leaders to help guide His church and make it what He intends it to be. Some of the positions mentioned in verse 11 were more critical to the formational years of the first, first years of the church. And others mentioned in that same verse were intended to form the foundational leadership of the church moving forward. The shepherds and teachers that are mentioned there in verse 11 are the elders that we've been learning about in the past uh, several sermons. The deacons are the position that we've been examining in the last few weeks and is designed to help those elders do the job they were called to do. They are a support minister that comes alongside and frees up the elder so that they might focus on teaching the word of God and praying over the people. And so God has assigned these leaders to accomplish a specific work. And that work is described in verse 12. Biblical leaders are called to equip the saints. To equip the saints. The word here for equipping is a very interesting Greek term. It goes beyond just giving people tools or skills. When we see the word equip or equipment or equipping, we might think of equipment like goods, resources, tools that we might put in someone's hands so that they can do a job. But the kind of equipping that the church leaders are aiming for here goes beyond just tools. It goes beyond knowledge and resources. The original Greek word here is katartizmon. And katartizmon is translated, equipped here. What it really means in the, in the original language, it carries more, more meaning to it. It means to restore something to its original condition. It means to fit various parts of a broken thing back together perfectly so that it might be healed and made right. This word was sometimes used in ancient Greek literature to describe how a physician would set a bone. Now, I'm a father of five boys and one little girl. It's amazing to me that i got five boys running around in this household, and this week was the first time we've ever had a cast on one of our kids. Last Sunday, our boys were climbing around on the monkey bars out there in church, and my second son, Sam, was trying to jump off the slide, lost his footing, and to try to break the fall from landing directly on his face, he put his hands out and ended up injuring his wrist. You know, we had some of the, the uh, nurses of our church take a look at it, and they said, we're not really sure if it's broken or not. Keep an eye on it. If it swells, if it's not feeling any better in the next couple days, you might want to get him checked out. So that's what we did. We took... Uh, Sam in and he got some x-rays and sure enough he had slightly broken the ends of the two bones in his forearm. It's called a green stick break meaning that it broke on one side but stayed connected and so it was pretty much right where it needed to be and uh, our technician was was quite a joker. He, uh, he gave my son some great dating advice. Um, he said, he said, you know when the ladies come running and they see this cast and they start giving you attention you make sure you only date the ones that have jobs. He said, ask for that W-2, and if they don't know what a W-2 is, you run away. So I don't know what he was trying to accomplish there, but uh, he also kind of joked with Sam because he said, you're really lucky that, that this wasn't worse to, a worse break because if it was, the three days you spent before you came in to get it x-rayed, it would have started to heal up the wrong way. And I would have had to taken your little arm here in my knee, and I would have had to put all my weight on it until I heard a snap. The calcium that was building up to try to heal it would have had to break free and then I would have had to align your bone back to where it was supposed to go so that when it started to form again and it started to heal, it would be aligned properly and it wouldn't heal crooked. That's the kind of word, this word for equipping, illustrates that kind of work of putting things back into place so that they will heal properly, so they will form the way they were designed to be, creating rightness and unity in God's church. 
Another form of the same word in the Greek is used again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. At the Corinthian church, Paul was experiencing a different kind of problem. In the church in Ephesus, he's trying to prevent disunity. In the church of Corinth, he's trying to reverse disunity. The people have begun to pick sides. They've each got different teachers. One man follows Apollos. One man really likes Paul's teaching. Another one who's really spiritual says, I only listen to the teachings of Jesus. And so the church is really fragmented. And so Paul is admonishing them and trying to get them to come together once more as a church unified under the word of God. And so he says in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. United here is, is that same root word used in Ephesians 4.12 that is translated to equip. Paul longs for the divisions that plague this Corinthian church to be overcome. He desires that they be fit together just the way that they were meant to be, that they be made complete, that they be reunified. Now sadly, a wrong view of the leadership positions that we've been studying over the last several weeks, the, a wrong view of elders and deacons and the role that they play can actually have the opposite effect. If we look at these two stations of service in the wrong light, then it can cause us to have a view of God's church which is inherently divided. It is possible to develop a mindset where we think that the elders and the deacons are equipped to do the professional level ministry, but the average Christian though of course they are loved by God, though of course they are saved from condemnation, the average Christian is not really qualified to do important spiritual work. That is a broken mindset that too many people have come to believe in the days of the church. If we fall victim to that false understanding of God's church, the body begins to feel as though it's divided along class lines. One side of the line represents the official holy men, the clergy, if you will, the elders and the deacons serving, teaching, directing, using their spiritual gifts, helping to grow the church, reaching out to the lost with the gospel. And then on the other side of that distinct line, the other people in the church, the regular members, the amateur Christians, happy to be loved by Jesus, thankful that they are headed to heaven, but not really engaged in any serious aspect of the mission, largely functioning as spectators. That is not the kind of church that God desires. I hope that we see in those first verses of Ephesians that God wants us all to be working towards one goal together, the goal of reaching a lost world for Jesus. Essentially, a perceived division occurs between the people who do the work of ministry and those who are along for the ride if we see the church in that broken way. Verse 12 of Ephesians 4 should help us to put that myth to rest. Verse 11, God has appointed leaders, various types of leaders, to help the church. How do they help the church? By equipping them, by helping them to draw near to one another, bringing them together like various pieces of one ministry puzzle. Why? For the work of ministry. Notice that the ministry here is not just said as something that the elders do, that the pastor teachers do, that the prophets and the evangelists do. It is something that those leaders teach the rest of the church to do and equip them to be good at doing. 
We aren't equipping the church as your elders. We're not equipping you with simple knowledge. You don't come here on Sunday mornings just to fill up your trivia basket and to go home with more mental awareness of what the Bible has to say. When you come to church, we're, we're not as your elders just trying to fill up your blessing basket, He's sending you home happier and more content with the good things that God has given to you, but not really engaged in ministry. That's not our goal. The leaders of your church are trying to equip you to do the work of the ministry. When I was a younger man going to church, I remember that at the end of each of our services, we would have an invitation time. We would have a time when anybody who perhaps was particularly affected by the sermon, who wanted to give their lives to Christ, could walk down to the front and we would counsel them through a decision to, to follow after Jesus Christ. Uh, don't think that just because we don't have an invitation that we're not concerned about people giving their lives to Christ. Uh, at any time, anyone who wants to come forward to be a believer can talk to one of our elders, can talk to the person who brought them, and we'll help you take those next steps. That is, that is part and parcel of what we exist for. We want to see those salvations happen in our church. We want to see those saved people be plugged into ministry and, and learn how to grow as more mature believers. But after our invitation time at my church that I grew up in, there was also a time where the minister would say, now if there's anyone who feels called to full-time ministry, someone who would feel the calling of, their, of the Lord on their heart to, to set their life aside, to serve Him as an elder or as a missionary or as a, as a, as a minister, then come forward and we'll, we'll talk with you about those things. We'll pray for you about that decision. And I don't think that it was my pastor's intention at all to make me have this idea, but I think looking at that and, and seeing those invitations to, to come forward and be a minister, I got it in my head that there were ministers who did the real ministry work, and then there were the rest of us who just sort of applauded them when they did a good job at it. We were there, sometimes we would help out with menial tasks, but I had this idea wrongly that the ministers were to do the evangelism and lead people to Jesus and do the real work of preaching the gospel and, and taking care of of the ministry that's supposed to go on in the church. That was a mistake that I had made. Do you have to be an elder or a deacon to collect an offering in church? Do you have to be an elder or a deacon to pray in front of your brothers and sisters? Do you have to be an elder or a deacon to distribute the communion to people, to counsel someone according to the scripture, to lead another person to Jesus Christ so that they might trust him and, and give their life to him forever? Nowhere in Scripture, brothers and sisters, does it say that you have to have the title of elder or deacon to do these important kinds of work. And yet many believers feel that they are somehow not qualified for the task. Of course you would want Christians whose lives exhibit a real faith in Jesus to do any task that is representative of God's church. But these important tasks, and many like them, are not the property of official church leaders. They are the responsibility of every sincere Christian. Look at Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 one more time. Who are the leaders equipping again? They are equipping the saints, right? The saints. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, I touched on this briefly. That word saints, that title that God gives to the people of his church is not just for the 1%, for the, for the top performers in the church. It is for everyone who has humbly come before the cross of Jesus Christ and said, I am a sinner and I can't fix that. Jesus, I owe a great debt of wrath to God, but unless I trust in the work that you did on the cross, I am hopeless. I am dead without you. 
take my life. Do something good with me. I give myself to you. Every believer who has had their sin washed away has been sanctified by him and is being sanctified by him. That's really what the word saint means. It means somebody who's been washed clean by Jesus Christ. But Jesus doesn't just cancel our debt out, does he? Jesus also imputes into the heart of a believer. He transfers his righteousness to us. So that not only are we neutral before God, but now we are equipped by his love to do righteous things in honor of the name of God. We are not called out of sin just to save us from hell. We are called out of sin so that we might be near to God and join him in the great work of reaching this world for what is good and what is righteous. Brothers and sisters, we are called to do the work of ministry. The, the last part of verse 12 reveals the end goal of all this equipping. That the body of Christ, the church, might be built up. Only so much can be learned by watching. Eventually, if you don't stand up and start doing then all the things that you're learning is never really going to settle into your heart. We must be a people of action. And not just the clergy of the church, not just the elders and deacons, but all of us must desire so greatly to grow in Christ that we are willing to get up out of our seats and walk forward and do the things that he would call us to do. Serve him in the ways that he would lead us to serve him. In the world that we live in today, there are many organizational structures. And many of the structures that you're familiar with, whether it be a business or a corporation or a nonprofit. Many of these organizations are structured in such a way that they are intentionally keeping the workers workers and the leaders leaders. There's upper management and then there's the labor force. There's the white collar and then there's the blue collar. Other organizations don't distinctly draw that line so much, but they use this upper echelon of leadership as kind of like a carrot that is dangled in front of those lower level workers to try to get them to be more productive. So they might get more useful work out of those ones as they hope to impress their leaders and maybe one day climb the ranks of the corporate ladder. But Christianity is totally different than this, friends. Totally different. Christianity calls every saved person a saint and urges them to take part in the holy mission that God has called the church to be responsible for. As you speak like Christ speaks, even quoting scripture, as you tell people the things that Christ has taught you are true, then you are serving as a saint in ministry. You are on mission for the Lord. As you love other people in the way that Christ has loved you, when you show agape, self-sacrificing love to others, then you are on mission for God. You are ministering to others. As you use your spiritual gifts to bless and strengthen your brothers and sisters in your church, you are acting out ministry. You are living it with your actions. As you follow the will of God, as Christ followed the will of God when he was here in the flesh, as you do what he calls you to do, then you are ministering to the Lord. You are working as a minister. Your maturity will increase and you will draw nearer to your fellow believers who are also desiring to minister to the Lord with their gifts and with their talents and with their design in such a way that the community of believers will be more unified. Ephesians chapter 4 goes on to say in a few later verses, verses 15 and 16, says that we are to be speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, 
for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are hoping to equip the body of Christ so that they might do the work of ministry in the same manner that Jesus did the work of ministry, that we might be more like Christ. Christ wasn't a spectator. He didn't just sit back and watch what was going on. He applied himself to the work of God in this world. So ministry is not just for ministers. It is for every believer. This myth of a distinct separation between the clergy and the layman, between the, the elder and deacon and the, the average member of the church, leads to tons of problems in the, in the fellowship of the saints. Those who see God's work that way are far more likely to be lethargic in the house of God. If they see the minister as the designated holy man that's supposed to do all the spiritual work, they're much more likely to just sit and listen, observe, get a blessing from time to time, and then go home and leave all the work up to other people, which leaves them without the blessing of obedient service to God. When the select few are doing all of the work of the church and the vast majority of the church is sitting by watching and waiting and observing, then that's going to leave the ministers who are elders and deacons absolutely burned out. It's going to overwhelm them. It's, they're not going to be able to keep up with the demands of the ministry, and so they're going to become frustrated. And so many men who were called to the work of God have wrongly walked away from it because the fellow brothers and sisters around them were not trying to do their part. We don't want to frustrate our pastors, our, our, our elders, our deacons. We want to participate alongside them so that they are encouraged, so that they can see that their preaching is making a difference, that their, their ministry, their equipping is, is making people more able and willing to do the work that God has called them to do. When people see the church in this two-level kind of mindset, this wrong picture of the church, they're far more likely to think wrongly about elders and deacons and exalt them and to think of them as some uberman or some special celebrity that needs to be exalted and lifted up, not only is that unhealthy for them, but it's also unhealthy for the elder or the deacon. When somebody ministers proficiently and others come alongside and say, oh, you're doing a great job. I'm, I'm going to call you in to do this other holy work. I think only you can do it. When they make the minister feel like they have to be the one to do it, 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 it can affect their pride. Ministers battle against pride just like every Christian does. And when their congregation puts them up on a pedestal and makes them feel like only they can do the work of the ministry, it can really stoke that pride. It can poison them into thinking that without them, the church would not be able to do what God has called the church to do. And friends, I also want to warn you. God has given you time and talent and resources for a reason. If you are not putting it to use for the good work of the church, you're going to put it to use for something. And odds are you're going to put it to use for something worthless. You're going to apply that time and that attention and that passion to something that when this world comes to an end, when Jesus Christ returns to receive his bride and all the constructions of this world, all the things that man have worked so hard to build that are not godly and are not spiritual are going to burn. They're going to crumble. Do we really want to spend what little time we have on this earth pouring ourselves into institutions and things that will have no real eternal value. God has called us to be a part of this church that has a mission that makes an impact forever. When you lead someone to Christ, when you 
and you share the gospel with them and it affects their heart in a real way, you've just watched God bring a person from death to eternal life with Him. And you were able to be a part of that by giving yourself over to the work of the church. What a noble cause to spend your time and energy and resources and efforts on. As we conclude the day, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. There's one more concept I want to flesh out for you that's going to help you to understand the correct way to see elders and deacons and how they're to interact with the rest of the congregation. 2 Peter chapter 2. There's a concept here that Peter lays out for the New Testament believers. And for the ones who came from a Jewish background, it must have been quite shocking. They were used to things being one way, and Peter is now painting things in a new light. He's going to use similar language that they used to apply to the old structures, and he's going to use them to describe the way the church is today in a way that was probably shocking to them. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verses 4 and 5. For if God did not spare angels when they... Oh, that's 2 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This spiritual house language was probably very radical for a Jewish person who had come to see Jesus Christ as their Messiah. They had for their whole lives gone to the spiritual house that they knew of, the spiritual house being the temple that existed on the holy hill of Jerusalem that was the place where the holy things of God were kept and was the one place that Israelites could legally come and sacrifice to their God. They couldn't, by the command of Scripture, go anywhere else to give their offerings to Him. So when Peter comes along and says, listen, this spiritual house, this idea of God's house needs to change because I'm building up a new one. It's not going to be a house that's built of stones like the one you're familiar with. It's going to be built with living stones. No longer will the temple be a dead building but the temple instead will now be the very people that He has called to be His church. And the Holy Spirit is no longer going to reside in this one geographical location, the holiest of holies in the temple. You remember that only the high priest could go there and only once a year because the very presence of God was believed to reside there. But when Jesus breathed His last on the cross, when He sacrificed His perfect life to pay for the sins of sinners like us, The scripture tells us that the veil that separated the holiest of holies from the rest of the temple, that it tore in two, dramatically, it ripped in half. God was supernaturally telling us that the presence of God is no longer confined to a place. But from this point forward, as Peter describes, these living stones are going to be like the temple of God. And the Holy Spirit is going to dwell within them. Wherever you go... The Spirit, the presence of God is with you now if you've trusted in Jesus Christ to be your Savior. How radical is that? And it would become even more radical in a few years after this is written when in 70 AD that temple that they loved was destroyed in an uprising, in a riot. 
it was burned to the ground. And they didn't have, and have not had since that very day, a physical temple where any kind of sacrifice could be made. I think Peter knew about that. He knew it was going to happen. And he preaches to us this new reality that the church of God is the temple, the living temple, that we are like stones now that carry around this Holy Spirit with us wherever we go. What happens in holy dwelling places of God? What happens in the house of the Lord? Worship happens in the house of the Lord. Sacrifice happens in the house of the Lord. Service happens in the house of the Lord, and praise happens there. 1 Peter 2 goes on to say in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. That's the second time we've heard that word. A holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Not only are we being made into a new type of temple, into a spiritual temple where the Holy Spirit dwells, but we are also called here in this scripture a royal priesthood unto God. That's very different from what the Jewish believers remember. They knew what the priesthood was for. They were there to offer sacrifices. They were there to intercede. For those who believers who were not Jewish, who, who came to trust in Jesus Christ, this idea of a royal, royal priesthood was a new concept for them. Now not only are we a house, but we are a royal priesthood to God. And this speaks to a doctrine we call the priesthood of the believer. That everyone who has given their life to Jesus Christ has the Spirit. And so everyone who is a follower of Jesus can minister and do holy things for the Lord God. Since our iniquity and sin has been washed away, not only can we stand before God now and have a right relationship with Him, but we are also empowered to do things that are holy and valuable in an eternal way. Why would God see those who believe as priests. Remember that I pointed out to you in our study of elders that we looked at the various names that elders are called by in the New Testament. We talked about how they're sometimes called shepherds or pastors, how they're sometimes called overseers or presbyters. These elders are never referred to as priests. Why? Because that's a title that belongs to all of us who believe. The leadership of the New Testament church is not some secret order. We don't wear special robes or a collar that sets us apart as some super spiritual upper class of the church. We are simply examples of the way that the true faith should be affecting every believer. Don't forget that those who are the under-shepherds of Jesus, Jesus is the one true shepherd of the church, pastors are like under-shepherds to him. It's almost as if we are standing there with the shepherd's hood on and the staff in hand, but it's a sheep wearing all that. Because we're sheep before we're shepherds, aren't we? So we are trying to guide and direct the church, but we are also in need of guidance and direction ourselves. We are on the same level as the church. We're not above. We're not over. We see over the church, but God loves the church just as he loves his elders and his deacons. The primary function of the Old Testament priest was to intercede because of the sin that was in people's lives. They couldn't go directly to the Lord in in a really personal way. And so these priests would cleanse themselves and would go through these rituals that God had given to them in an effort to try to bring man closer to God. This function is now obsolete because Jesus has made us clean and holy. The book of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 19 through 20 
says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. What holy place is he talking about? He's talking about the holiest of holies in the temple, that place that was, the, the veil of which was torn in two, giving us access to God through faith. Since we have confidence to enter the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Who is the high priest who now functions as the interceder between God and man? Verse 21 says, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and he is referring to Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. We pray in the name of Jesus. Why? Because it is only by His blood that we can come near to God. We don't need a priest anymore to, to sanctify us. We don't need to have a, a high priest going through the holiest of holies because we have access to that in prayer by Jesus Christ, our Savior. So why does God see us as priests? And what does that mean for us? Scripture explains to us that while the Old Testament priest was responsible for offering physical sacrifices, those physical sacrifices being symbolic of the sacrifice that Jesus would one day make on Calvary, the New Testament priest is responsible for a different kind of sacrifice. The New Testament priest, the believer in Jesus, is responsible for offering spiritual sacrifices. Now these are not atoning sacrifices. We do not serve the Lord God as priests in the New Testament church because by giving him our offerings it makes us eligible for heaven. We don't give these services because it makes us um, worthy of his salvation. We offer these spiritual sacrifices as a response to the wonderful love that he has poured out onto us. Remember 1 Peter 2.5 says, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are some of these spiritual sacrifices? I want to show four of them to you from the New Testament. There probably are more than these, but these four are very obvious to us just by reading God's Word. The first is the sacrifice of ourselves. You can offer you as a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. Look at Romans 12.1. The Apostle Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. When we come before the king, we say, Lord, here I am. I'm yours now. I belong to you. Use me how you would desire to use me. And we are offering our bodies up as a living sacrifice to him. We are making ourselves available for him to use however he desires. In whatever way would please him best and would best help his church. So when we make ourselves available for the ministry and to be used by the the Lord God for His goodwill, then we are being a living sacrifice to Him. He doesn't need us to offer ourselves as a dying sacrifice. We are, our old lives of sin are already dead. We show that when we're baptized. Our old lives of sin have been put to death, but now we've been raised in the likeness of Jesus Christ, and we can walk in a way that is pleasing to Him. So we offer a living sacrifice now that is useful to Him, that can be applied to the work of His mission. Secondly, the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving are wonderful spiritual sacrifices that we can give to the Lord. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Therefore by Him, meaning Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. 
That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Friends, if you want to make a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord, thank him for what he has done in your life. Sing out to him in praise that is worthy of him. Sing to him the things that he has taught to you. That is what we do when our band is here leading us in the presence of the Lord God. And I know for some of you it's tempting. You might think to yourself, well, I'm not particularly good at singing. So as we sing these songs, I'll just enjoy the good work of the band. I'll just listen to the person who are around me. If you're tempted to do that, please think twice about that. When you come into the house of God and those words are being projected up there for you and this band is working hard to try to bring you into this, this fellowship of praise, sing out to God. And don't let your self-conscious view of your voice or your skills or your abilities keep you from giving to God whatever gift you can give to Him. I remember in the Old Testament book of Leviticus when the Lord God is giving through Moses instruction on how the people are to bring an atoning sacrifice for their sins. He says that they are to bring a spotless lamb that was without blemish, that was a male of the breed, and they were to give that spotless lamb by offering its life in exchange for theirs. But I love what comes after that. The, the Old Testament acknowledges that that was a very costly gift. And there were many, many among the nation of Israel who didn't have a single lamb to offer. They didn't have the kind of resources to go out and buy an ox or to bring a goat to sacrifice, but they had sin. And so concessions were made in the law. If you couldn't afford to bring a, a lamb to offer, you could bring a dove, a simple fowl that was purchased pretty cheaply, and that dove could be offered as a sacrifice for your sin. But if you couldn't even afford that, God wanted to make sure that anyone could offer to the Lord. And so he said, bring, bring grain. Bring a grain offering and just give a portion of what you're surviving. Like, give that to the Lord. See, God doesn't want us to come and impress him necessarily. He wants us to come and be obedient to him. And so if you come into this house and you think to yourself, I'm not going to sing because my voice doesn't sound pretty and I can't have hit every note and, 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 and other people sing so much better than I do. Just remember that God has called you to this place to give an offering of praise. It is your spiritual gift to Him when you sing out with your voice, when you're faithful and you tell Him the things that He has told you are true in His Word. So don't be afraid to praise Him. Don't be afraid to give Him thanks and to think about how the words of these songs apply to your own heart. That is a spiritual offering to the Lord. Thirdly, we give this sacrifice of service as a spiritual offering. When we come to the Lord God and say, well, I might not have much, but here's what I've got. Put it to your good use. We are offering a spiritual sacrifice. Do you remember that little boy who had packed his lunch when Jesus was preaching out in the wilderness? And they had 5,000 to 10,000 people out there. They, they only counted the men, so we don't know exactly how many people were out there, but a huge, massive audience had come to hear Jesus preach. And they're beginning to grow weary, and they're beginning to become tired, and Jesus has compassion. He says, we need to feed these people. What do we have to feed them with? And the disciples say, we don't have anything. We've got to send them off into the, into the towns that are nearby so they can buy their own food. We can't afford to feed all these people. And he says, what do we have? And they found one little boy who was willing to bring a couple of loaves, some small fish, that he had planned to eat himself that day. And he said, take, use it how you can. I don't know how far you can make it go. What does God do with that little offering? The Lord multiplies it. And miraculous, we see that not only is the whole multitude fed that day, but they had baskets and baskets of food left over because God is a generous God. 
and he will use your service, however big or small you think it might be, he will use your willingness to bless this church. You don't have to be a mastermind in the scripture. You don't have to be brilliant with numbers or a leader of people or charismatic. There is always something that needs to be done that you can apply yourself to. And that good work might be just the thing that's holding us back from doing what God wants us to do until the right people step up to get it done. I think of those who are willing to come and serve in our Sunday school and put their efforts into caring for our little ones. They might even think to themselves, well, I'm not much of a teacher. I guarantee you, you know more than the little kids who are in there. And even if you can't bring yourself to, to teach because you're, you're worried about getting it wrong, then be an assistant. Help. Do something that you can do to offer up a service to the Lord. And then fourthly, the sacrifice of proclamation is another way that we offer a spiritual sacrifice. So we read through 1 Peter 2.9. We have already read. I'm going to read it to you again. It says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That proclamation means that we're willing to tell the truth because God has told us the truth. We're willing to take the things that we have learned in this book and share it with the people around us. First with our own family, then with our neighbors, and then with the, the people of our, of our city, the, the people that we work alongside, the stranger on the street, are we willing to tell the truth about what God has revealed to us? By proclaiming the gospel, we are doing a faithful ministry for the Lord. Every one of us can be engaged in this. You might not know everything about the gospel. I don't either. Share what you know with the people around you. Encourage them by what it has done in your life and give them an opportunity to engage in that scripture so that they can too be blessed by that resource, that well of knowledge and love that God has reserved for us in his scripture. How tempting would it have been for Peter, who at one point was called the rock, who was encouraged as the one who had the good and faithful testimony and testified that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. How tempting would it have been to write a letter to the churches in Asia Minor and say something different? And to say, yes, myself and the other apostles were working very hard for the ministry, and as long as you all just keep sending money, we'll just keep doing that good work. But, but don't worry about getting involved with it. You might do it wrong. You might not do it exactly how you're supposed to, so, so don't get involved. Just... Just keep praying for us and keep supporting us and we'll just keep winning people to Christ and we'll keep planting churches. Peter could have just put that spotlight on himself. And if you look at his life earlier, if you look at his time with Jesus before the cross, we have an express example of when he was doing just that. He and the other disciples were, were talking back and forth and Jesus walks up because he knows what they're talking about. And he says, hey, what are you guys discussing? And they must have been very embarrassed because they had to confess to him that they were talking about who among the twelve was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They, because of their flesh, desired that two-layer perception of the church where there's the normal people and then there's the exalted people. And Jesus teaches them. He says, no, 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 no. He who is the least among you will be the greatest. Peter has learned that lesson here. And so as he communicates with these churches in Asia Minor and shares with them this, this challenge to see themselves as more than just people, but as priests, as a royal priesthood, as a chosen nation, as the very temple of God. He is encouraging them to engage in the priesthood of every believer. Grace of Jesus has grown the heart 
of Peter. And he's far beyond the point that he was when he, he desired to be that exalted and recognized and honored man who stood at the right hand of the Father. Now, I don't show you this scripture today, and I don't preach this message so that you'll have a low view of elders and deacons. It's not as if their place in the church is unimportant or unworthy of honor. In fact, the scripture is very clear to us that we are to honor the work that God does through his elders and his deacons. 1 Timothy chapter 5 gives us a series of, of uh, directions about how we're to see our elders. It says in 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So he's not saying that they're so much better than anyone. He's simply saying that if they're doing a faithful work, then they're worthy of honor. They're worthy of recognition. We should be grateful for the men that God is using to fill those roles. We should be supportive of them. We should praise God for the work that he's doing through them. Their labor of love is a benefit and a blessing to the church, and their guidance will hopefully result in growth and maturity and more accurate unity in the body. Verse 18 says, For Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul is careful to remind that the church, that those who are serving as elders and who are pouring themselves into the Word and to prayer, if they're doing that diligently, then it's good to support them financially. It's good to have paid staff members who can really devote themselves to that work. There's nothing wrong with giving them a salary. That's not putting them on a pedestal necessarily. That's not creating a two-class system. If they are putting their heart and soul into preparing for the sermons and, and leading the ministries, then it's good that they might be compensated. In verse 19, it goes on to say, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Which reminds us that this work of being an elder, a leader in the church, and also I would say the work of a deacon, it puts a target on you. People will often get upset at you because you're one of the leaders and they might try to make up stories. They might try to falsely accuse you or they might misperceive what you're doing. And so Paul gives us reason to protect our elders and our deacons from accusations. He says, be careful. Don't just believe everything you hear about these men, but, but know that they have a strong testimony and make sure that you have several witnesses before you bring a charge against them. We should be careful not to let people slander our leaders. But when a, leader sh when a person in a leadership position does come under scrutiny and it becomes clear that they have uh, experienced a moral failure or a setback or they've been caught in a sin, verse 20 says, As for those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. By saying yes to, to serve as a deacon or as an elder, you realize that when you do fail that your failings are to be made public to the church because we cannot afford to let people think that those who are in leadership are being sinful and not following the word and then getting away with it or being covered up. In no way should that happen. So we take on that responsibility as leaders that if we fail, then we must be the first to repent. And our repentance has got to be public. The church actually benefits when, when people in, in ministry, ministry positions fail are willing to come forward and say the truth and show with their example how a believer is to confess and to seek restoration. That preacher that I mentioned a, a few weeks back who, whose preaching I have always admired who recently fell into moral um, adultery did a, a, a good thing. And he posted a letter to all who had heard him preach and to all the members of his church and to those who have become aware of his moral failure taking full responsibility for it. 
um, admitting that he had, he had seriously sinned and let himself be led astray, and asking that the anger and the frustration that people had towards him would be directed towards him and not towards his wife or toward his kids. He did a faithful job of not making excuses, not saying it was the circumstances, but simply saying, I have failed. And he's not seeking ministry positions anymore because he knows he's disqualified from that right now. And I appreciate his willingness to do that. Those who serve as elders and deacons, we don't want to think of them lowly. Their job is important. It is critical. But they're not so much better than every Christian that walks into the doors of the church. The leaders have been called to be leaders so that God can use them to train you to be better priests. The object of this morning's sermon is not to make you think less of deacons and elders. Rather, God's word helps us to see that their service is not the only service that matters. And it's not even the greatest service of the church. We can each serve in ways that help the, uh, the lost be found and the found be discipled. There is no room for a believer to have the mindset, oh, I'm not a leader. I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a minister, so I'm, I'm just going to step back and let the, the, the real strong Christians do that work. There's no mindset. That mindset doesn't have a place in the church. That kind of thinking leaves Sunday school classes without teachers. That kind of thinking leaves your neighbor unreached and hopeless in his home as he just sits there and wonders what the reason he's even living is, is for. When we don't step up and reach out to those neighbors and, and share the love of Christ with them, who's going to do that? That kind of thinking that the strong will do the ministry and I'll just watch, I'll just applaud them, that kind of thinking leaves the lonely feeling abandoned. It leaves the poor with empty stomachs. Brothers and sisters, we are the church. We are the holy house of God now. And God expects us to respond to His great gift of sacrifice. He wants us to respond to that wonderful forgiveness that we've been shown by living our lives in service to Him. Friends, would you bow with me as we close in a word of prayer?